Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. In today's episode, we start our discussion about objects from history. 100 bloody objects. Jamie, tell us about today's bloody object. Object number one, Maxim's Plague. The birth of the machine gun and how it changed the modern battlefield forever. I like it. Unfortunately, we haven't got Maxim's Plague here or a machine gun, but we do have a very interesting article in my Encyclopedia Britannica from 1910, the 11th edition, so before the First World War, in which there's a full explanation of how the machine gun and the Maxim gun are constructed and the thinking of that time. The plaque reads, Sir Hiram Maxim, 1840-1916, inventor and engineer, designed and manufactured the Maxim gun in a workshop on these premises. So was this fine building really the birthplace of the modern machine gun? It was indeed, Tom. Uh, it was the start of production, the, the workshop in which a single-barreled automatic weapon was made. And it was a revolution, not necessarily recognised as a revolutionary thing at the time, but in over a period and certainly after the Great War, one realized quite how extraordinary that weapon was. It wasn't the first weapon to be able to fire large volleys of ammunition. Uh, that award really goes to the Gatling gun, uh, developed by Dr. Richard Gatling, uh, patented 1862. But that was a hand-cranked weapon. It was used in the American Civil War at the Siege of uh, it was Petersburg in Virginia, for example, but it never made a huge impact, and it was more of an artillery weapon. I mean, it had 10 barrels, it was heavy, it was cumbersome, and at 200 rounds a minute, yes, it could lay down a lot of fire, but when it comes to the Maxim gun, which used recoil energy to eject a cartridge and replace it with another one, uh, you had about 600 rounds a minute. So that was an extraordinary thing. Of, for that period. Okay, so well, we're going to come back to the Gatling gun later on in this chat, but the Maxim gun, who, who saw its potential? It was used initially in expeditionary battles overseas, and maybe that's why it didn't filter back to the mainstream army back in, back in London uh, and the general staff. The, the first recorded use of it, successful use of it overseas, was at the Battle of Shangani River, uh, you're talking 1893, and a week or two later, the Battle of Bembezi, when 700 mercenaries uh, sent into Matabili land by Cecil Rhodes took on thousands of Matabili warriors. And at Shangani River, they killed about 1,500. At Bembezi, 2,000. And that was for the loss of just a handful of British soldiers, British mercenaries. So already the, the, the extraordinary destructive power of the machine gun was becoming evident. But it really came of age at the Battle of Omdurman. Uh, you had in 1898 
the army of Lord Kitchener heading into the Sudan to deal with the Mahdi army. And there he confronted them. It was a huge army he faced, 40,000 dervishes. And of that 40,000, he slaughtered 10,000 of them uh, with howitzers and with the Maxim gun. And it made an enormous impact. But what is so ironic is that the people who saw the most potential in it were actually the Germans. There was a German defense attache there as an observer. Uh, He obviously told his superiors. It was soon after that that Rothschild's bank uh, arranged a license and Germany started manufacturing the Maxim gun. But wasn't Churchill at the Battle of Omdurman? Did, Did he not see the potential? Oddly, he didn't. But then he was a young man. He was involved in the charge at Omdurman, of course, and and killed four dervishes with his own pistol. So he was far too caught up with it. And I don't think he looked at the battle as a whole too carefully. It would have just been another colonial encounter. You know, the Germans got hold of it, and, and actually the Maxim machine gun that they built under license was called the MG08, and that was the standard German weapon, standard German machine gun through the Great War. I mean, a lot of people, I think, today who know a bit about the First World War would make the assumption that the Maxim machine gun was a German invention. Well, they may well think that, and there were several derivatives. There was one called the Schwarzlose, manufactured by the Austrians, and that ended up being used right through the Second World War as well uh, by different units. So it, it had an enormous impact. But what is extraordinary is that the one person who foresaw the horrors of the Great War was not even a soldier. He was a Polish Jewish banker, a, a hobbyist in a way, and no one likes a smart ass, no one likes an amateur enthusiast. And he was called Jan Gottlieb Bloch. And he wrote papers and books on how a future war would be impossible to win. And what he did was go back to the American Civil War of the 1860s and say, because of trenches, because of barbed wire, because of smokeless ammunition, and this wasn't even including the machine gun, but because of the arrival of smokeless ammunition on the battlefield, you had a clear view, it would give the advantage hugely to the defense. And he he said, look, the American Civil War had 200,000 casualties all told, 200,000 deaths. You had enormous casualties at battles like Antietam and Gettysburg. This shows that in future, you, you just won't be able to attack an enemy position successfully. And that was even without the machine gun. As the article in the 1910 Encyclopedia Britannica shows, People were thinking of the machine gun, but they hadn't worked out how to use it. So here we go, extracts from the 11th edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, 1910. Under organisation and tactical employment, we have this. Although machine gun tactics are still somewhat indefinite, at least there are some well-marked tendencies. And then it goes on to say, most military powers indeed distrust it, i.e. the machine gun. Further, it goes on to say uh, there are a number of points when considering the machine gun, such as free to move, and another to cooperate with other troops of their side in the closest possible way. It goes on also to say that there are still questions as to the precise value of a machine gun, i.e. how many rifles would be required to produce the fire effect of a machine gun. And the fourth 
point they make is the need of concealment and of evading the enemy's shrapnel. It ends by talking about uh, combined tactics and says the following. Contrasting the German system with the French and English, we may observe that it is the German tactic as a whole that imposes a method of using machine guns. And then further down it says, the French and British doctrine is fundamentally different. What is interesting about these articles is obviously this is a discussion that's going on at the time the encyclopedia was produced, which is 1910, before the First World War had started. So was there anyone in the military in uh, the British or French establishment that could see the potential for the machine gun? Not really. Uh, there were machine gun sections in the British Army battalions, even in the Boer War, but no one had really thought it through. If you look at the French Army, in 1911, their battle orders uh, were for the infantry to march forward towards the enemy in close formation with a drummer boy. And the British Army didn't go that far, at least by the time of the Great War, the British Army had helmets, which the French Army didn't have. So, of course, no one was aware of the destructive power of this weapon, this new gun. Part of it really is cultural. Part of it is that there hadn't been a war on the continent in a 100 years uh, since the Battle of Waterloo, 1815. And partly that all of the senior officers uh, in the general staff and the high command of the British Army had cut their teeth as young men in colonial wars. And uh, dealing with Zulus or dervishes or on the northwest frontier, it, it simply didn't occur to them that there could possibly be a, a conflict uh, on the scale, on the proportions, on the destructive level of the Great War. I mean, it reminds me of the same problems that the Roman legions had um, when they fought, you know, the British, uh, the Britons or the, or the Germans. That was one thing. But when suddenly they had a civil war and they were fighting legions, the problem is they were up against similar people to themselves with the sort of similar destructive power. Yes, you expect the same tactics. You don't expect people to play dirty. And that's one of the problems with, with modern warfare. It's trying to deal with an asymmetric threat that is, that, is, that is the problem. If you want an example of how difficult it was to persuade the British Army, you can take a character like Rhys Williams. And he was an amazing man. He was 49 when he signed up for service in the British Army at the start of the Great War. He was a barrister, and he knew Lloyd George. Not only was he very much involved in founding the Welsh Guards, but he was extremely important in persuading Lloyd George to tell the senior levels of the British Army to employ the machine gun, because the word that Lloyd George was getting back was that senior officers didn't like the machine gun because it was simply a way of putting several bullets through the same hole and that it would undermine British marksmanship. And what, was there a tipping point, a turning point in the First World War when the British and French armies realised that they had to change their view? As soon as they started digging trenches, as soon as they wanted to stop the German advance, then the machine gun came into its own. They had seen its potential during the Boer War, but they just hadn't noticed it. <laughs> it, hadn't, it just hadn't worked its way into their psyche. 
as we saw from that reading in the Encyclopedia Britannica, the tactics hadn't been worked out. And again, this cultural thing, this, this aversion to change in technology can be seen, you can project that forward to the 1930s, the whole debate on the tank versus the horse. Yeah, of course. I mean, the tank was, again, a, a British invention. And the whole idea was basically pinched wholesale by the Germans. Uh, it's incredible that at the Battle of Combray in 1917, we sent the tank over. It initially... Uh, had a huge shock impact, but it was the Germans who integrated it into their army, integrated it into the combined arms sphere of warfare, and picked it up and ran with it. Again, it's amazing that not only did the Germans take the invention, they also adopted the tactics. There was an amazing man called Colonel J.F.C. Fuller, later Major General Boney Fuller, and he was the godfather of modern tank warfare. And what marked him out was not that he was a great strategic thinker, which he was, but also he happened to be a fascist. He was at Hitler's 40th birthday. He was a friend of the great German tank commander, Guderian. He was an occultist, so everything he did was in threes, unholy trinity. That, again, was adopted by the Germans. So you can actually say that the occult had a great deal to do with Blitzkrieg and the way the Second World War was pursued. Well, the Germans loved all that. Well, the Nazis loved all of that, didn't they? All that um, occult. Well, they did. And they certainly weren't averse to adopting new technology just at a time when the Brits were umming and ahhing about whether the tank should be used. It's a cultural thing. There was a lot of resistance among cavalry regiments to the tank because the officers thought that it would undermine discipline, it would blur the distinction between officers and men the sort of class structure would start being undermined. Yeah, I remember even my grandfather, who was in the Royal Air Force um, from the First and Second World War, he was at Staff College at Santos, which is obviously the Army Staff College, um, honest comment. He very much recognised, even though he wasn't a sort of number one fan of everything technologically new, but that the Army had a view that if it wasn't, if you couldn't feed hay into it, it wasn't really worth using. They preferred horses to tanks. Yes. The other problem was that a lot of the senior officers were very averse to new technology anyway, and the tank was certainly a new technology. We've talked about this, this cultural thing. You, you, the, the armies and the armed forces reflect the cultures and the societies from which they emerge and which they serve. And if you wind on to, say, the 1970s, 1979, and the Chinese invasion of Vietnam, the punitive raid into Vietnam. This is obviously after the Americans have left. That was after the Americans had left, and Vietnam had uh, invaded Cambodia, so the Chinese went into Vietnam. They were still using human wave tactics that they were using during the Korean War, and they were mowed down in their thousands. Again, it was because no one in China, no one in the army, no one in the political elite had thought, is this a wise thing to do? They just stuck with what they knew. And that is one of the problems with any sort of military and any sort of society that goes to war. Is it possible that today we've kind of swung all the way over to the other side and that we believe a bit too much in technology? I mean, I know we're talking about machine gun, but in technology in general? Yes, we are very technology dependent uh, the whole of society is and in a way it's because America is the sole superpower and it's very uh, techno 
savvy, very techno-dependent. You, you can tell the difference between different cultures by special forces, for example. Uh, the American special forces, tier one special forces, are very good at direct action. They're SEALs and they're Delta Force. But you wouldn't get them carrying 100-pound weight Bergens and tabbing for 60, 70 kilometers to attack a target and then being in an observation post, crapping into cling film and freezer bags for a week. They just don't do that. And it's, it, it is essentially a, a cultural thing. Yes. So it's not just the Maxim gun that came of age, also the Gatling gun. Yes, come the, the latter part of the 20th century, the Gatling gun came into its own again. Because if you want to put up a wall of lead or lay down a wall of depleted uranium ammunition against tanks, it's the Gatling gun that is the weapon of choice. The phalanx close-in weapon system is on a lot of American warships uh, to shoot down enemy anti-ship missiles. The GAU-8 cannon on the Thunderbolt II tank buster uh, can rip apart any tank on the battlefield. Yeah, I've seen that one in action actually yeah. once. That was amazing. Yes, and, and, and the mini guns on the Spectre II AC-130 gunship, they too are Gatling guns. So today, the Gatling gun and the Maxim gun uh, operate side by side on the modern battlefield. And yet, the Browning, the 0.5 Browning machine gun, I mean, when, when, when did that first appear? Well, 1917 and 1919. Still in use today. Still in use today. But then if you have a good weapon system, why fix it? Incredible. I think that the machine gun makes a fine start to our hundred bloody objects. We're going to have plenty more for you. Thanks, James. Thank you, Tom. Oh, also, let's have a little postscript about um, when old Kitchener was uh, sailing up the Nile to give it to the Mahdi. Tell us a little bit about what he was up to on the side. <laughs> well, as, as Corporal Jones said in, in Dad's Army, they, they don't like it often. And uh, one of the things Kitchener did, he had to get his army up the Nile. So he used steamships and they ran out of coke and wood very quickly. So what uh, the British Army did... Uh, improvisation is always the key to these situations. They raided all the tombs along the Nile and started throwing mummies into the furnaces, into the boilers. And there's nothing like bandages and resin to, to produce a really good heat. Oh, my goodness. You better keep that one quiet. <laughs> That's it. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.